Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host for the Nature Institute podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process through which we work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive the rich complexity and wholeness of the world. What you're about to hear is Craig Holridge's presentation at the online book launch of Seeing the Animal Whole and Why It Matters that occurred on April 29, 2021. This event was organized by Lindensfarn Books, the book's publisher. Seeing the Animal Whole and Why It Matters. So I'd like to start by just, you know, um, thinking about our relation to animals and on the one hand, you know, many of us have close relations to animals through our pets, um, where with dogs or cats, um, we have this very close, you could say, ensouled relation to these beings that they could then become part of our lives and whose behavior we can begin to read and who they read our behavior in a very close relation can emerge. And we can have, you know, relations to many other kinds of animals in, in, in the way of fascination. Um, and uh, it can go so far, though, that you can feel like, on the one hand, yes, I, I kind of know what animals are through my dog or through my cat. Um, but then you can have experiences where you wonder, do I really no. Um, I'd like to mention one experience that I actually write about briefly in the book, where I was in Yellowstone National Park, um, overlooking the Yellowstone River up um, in the Lamar Valley in the northern part of the park. Um, I was with my wife, Henrika, and we were standing there looking down into the, to the river and over onto the other side of these, um, you know, it was a precipice. Um, at the top, there was forested landscape, basalt, and then really a very steep drop into this river, which was full of spring meltwater. And then we saw there are animals on that very steep um, precipice, what we would call a precipice. And those animals were four-legged animals. They were grayish. Um, in tone, a little bit like the rock behind them, so they weren't easy to see, but we had binoculars. And we realized we're looking at female bighorn sheep and their little babies. Babies isn't quite perhaps the right word. They're lambs walking around, jumping around, running around on an incline where it would be clear that as a human being, you would not feel comfortable at all. And we watched them for a long period of time over a couple of days and could see how they were completely at home in an environment that we would say is completely inhospitable. And yet they, there they were, sure on their feet, um, jumping around, sometimes losing their footing, but then again, gaining it right away. And they were living in a world and relating to the world in a way that I could hardly imagine. So there you have the experience of, in a sense of the otherness of the animal, 
it's it's being in a world living integrated into a world that is really hard to fathom as a human being and then we have when you look at the animal world this incredible diversity of animals just a place like yellowstone which is a little island of of mammalian diversity and bird diversity and insect diversity um if you think you have the bison elk moose um foxes coyotes and of course the wolves that have been reintroduced um and then you have many types of birds we saw peregrine falcons um the golden eagle everywhere these very different creatures each with their own way of being or i can think about here at the nature institute right next to the parking area where in the summer time when the um milkweed starts to flower then it becomes an incredible life of very small animals all the different um insects and the spiders the mites um think of the moths there are lots of different moths butterflies and it is teeming with a life where i can say i have very little understanding of what it means to be an animal in this way but i can also see this incredible diversity of what i'll call and what i call in the book different ways of being there are different ways of being in the world as animals and there are riddles and some of those riddles um you know you can see an animal and you can just kind of say oh that's amazing and others they become like oh i'd i'd like to i'd like to know you better so this is kind of one of the themes in the book is who are you animals who are you and so i have chosen to um portray a number of different animals and this is work that's been going on for the last 20 to 30 years in my life and in in the attempt to to present a picture of how these animals live in the world and how they are in and of themselves integrated whole beings seeing the animal whole and so that is um my attempt and in doing this it's means lots of research in very many different kinds of ways and the one where i can to observe the animals in their natural habitats um i've done a lot of study of the morphology of animals those of you who've been in our courses um uh, know that right the studying the bones um and going to museums and studying the collections and really getting a picture of of the form of the animal in its relation to the whole animal through the skeleton mainly in my in my case and then reading 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 what others have um found out about these animals there are many 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 dedicated animal observers in the world whose work is really lies at the foundation of what um is in this book i could never do that on my own 
there's no way. So you, I, I have to thank a whole community of, of researchers around the world and for the, over the past couple hundred years who have been, you know, committing their attention to trying to understand animals better. But I bring these por portraits or portrayals in a particular way because it's, a, it's about seeing the animal in its own right, how it's integrated, how the, the parts are integrated in the whole, how the whole um, informs all the parts. And you have to go into a lot of detail for that. Um, the, the philosopher of the Goethean approach, Henry Bortoft, you know, remarks in his book, The Wholeness of Nature, the way to the whole is in and through the parts. So um, there are lots of details in this book, but they're hopefully not presented in a way that it's one fact after another fact after another fact, um, but in a way that you can begin to see how this aspect of the animal relates to that aspect and allows it to be in the world in this particular way, in this particular environment. So the book, the first part of the book is these different portrayals of animals. And I would like to just give one little taste. It's actually from one that's in the second part of the book and an animal you all know, um, and that's the giraffe. And I, I'm selecting the draft to mention tonight because it shows us a number of different things um, about the approach I'm taking in the book and, and what I'm trying to address. And when I ask people, you know, in courses or in talks, you know, um, have you ever, did you ever learn about the giraffe in school? And people will often say yes. Um, yeah, they're the ones who have developed long necks in order to reach the higher leaves on trees. That answer you get again and again. It's kind of the, the textbook giraffe. And you can find that when you, you read about the giraffe, there's an incredible focus on the neck and the neck kind of by itself, separated from the neck, uh, from the rest of the animal. How did the giraffe get its long neck? And um, I, you know, after um, a long, I mean, I, in my studies, I was kind of always skeptical about this, you know, how um, just focusing on the neck, but I couldn't really say more. And then a detailed study began after I'd already been teaching about it in high school classes, teaching about the giraffe and also teaching it kind of in the normal way, in the traditional way, and then realizing more and more now there's something not right here. And you're, you're by pulling out the part, you're isolating it, and you can never understand it unless you put it in relation to the whole animal. So um, what do you do? You start studying the animal in and through the parts to see, okay, it's wholeness. And so the giraffe does have an objectively very long neck. Its vertebra are very long. Um, and it has seven vertebra, like all mammals do, except for a couple exceptions. And it's, each of those vertebra is extremely long. Um, so the giraffe's neck is long, but there are other aspects of the giraffe that are quite unique. And that... Those, I'd like to mention just a few of those. You look at the giraffe's form, 
it's not just like a horse with a long neck or something or a cow with a long neck. It's, it's whole gestalt is different. Its body is comparatively short. So it's got a, a short rump, a short body, and it's got very long legs. And the interesting thing about the giraffe is, in contrast to all the other um, four-legged mammals, is that its front legs are longer than its rear legs. In all other four-legged mammals, except for the okapi, which is a relative, the only living relative of the giraffe, the hind legs are longer than the front legs. And so here you have, in this animal, a tendency of lengthening in the forelegs. You have a lengthening in the neck. The insertion of the neck on the spine is raised up, so the spine is not horizontal. It's actually at an angle like this. So what you have in the giraffe is a raising up, um, a lengthening in legs, bringing the body high off the ground, insertion of the neck up high, the neck very long, and then it has a long head. And it can, in contrast to its um, other four, its four-legged relatives, it can then raise its head on its neck really to be completely upright, right? So where other animals will have to keep their head like this, they can move their head into this angle. It's a special anatomical feature of the joint of the skull and um, the first bone of the, of the spine. And then they have a very long neck, uh, sorry, neck, I already said, and, and skull, and now tongue. They have a tongue that can extend a foot out of their mouths. So you can imagine this animal, when it is going upward, 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 it can go very high, but not only through the long neck. It is an animal that has the, the, where the body has become more contracted in the front back direction, and the whole front part of the animal is emphasized going up. And then in that, in that gesture, what sense becomes very prominent? The eyes. They have very large eyes and excellent eyesight, where then their head, you can say, resting on these columns of the legs and of the neck, then has this incredibly broad view of the environment. They, they are an, an animal of an, with an overview. And so you can then begin to go into all sorts of more details, and I won't do that here, that's in the book, where you can begin to see, oh, yes, the animal is not just a long neck, it's got features that are all related to each other that make it, that allow it to be a being of a very particular sort, you know, the nowhere, nothing like it on earth. And these characteristics, and I don't want to deny the neck, so I want to say a couple more things, that the neck is important. Very interesting, through this very strange form that they have, for when an L, uh, when a um, giraffe gets down onto the ground, it's not so easy to get up. And, and when they lift themselves off the ground, part of the momentum for that is to 
raise their neck up, right? It's to throw the neck up. And then when they're walking and then they start galloping, it's actually throwing their head apart, their, their neck into the front, sorry. They're throwing their neck into the front and that's helping them move along. So the neck even becomes one, uh, partially an organ of movement, even though they're still four-legged animals. And the males, when and we know this from many different kinds of mammals, that the males will have their times of battling, of sparring with each other. And what do the male giraffes do? They hit with their necks, right? It's called necking. It's a different kind of necking than most of us know the word for, right? But this, this, so there, it's a very special organ within a very specially organized animal. So this is my attempt um, in these por portraits that go throughout the book, but the emphasis in the first, um, first part of the book to show this unique way of being of a sloth or of a mole, of an elephant, of the zebra, of the lion in their relation to each other. Um, so going through these animals and showing their integratedness internally and their integratedness into the world that we call their environment and the other animals and plants and um, yeah, the environment that they live in and through. So then this, these whole organism studies, as I call them, they provide a foundation to start looking at some really important issues within biology, within the biological sciences. They form a, a foundation um, of a different way of thinking about evolution and development. And so in the second part of the book where the giraffe is featured, the zebra and its stripes, and excuse me, then the um, frog, and its development, I go into questions based on portrayals of how do we think about evolution, for example. If we see that the animal is an integrated whole and integrated into its environment, then it means we have to take the animal as an integrating active being seriously as an agent in evolution. I'm not going to try to you know, describe that more in detail here, um, but I just want to um, point out that the, the focus that we often have in biology of looking at individual traits and talking about um, individual mutations which cause this to come about and then that allows an animal to survive um, better or worse, um, that that look, pulling the, these individual traits out and focusing on them is a high level abstraction that does not do justice to the animal. Because each one of those characteristics is integrated into the whole animal. And when something change, actually, uh, changes, the whole animal changes in some way or another. And it, it, those new, new features can, um, uh, can be integrated um, then they can be adjusted to continue life in, in the way more or less it was before, or it can start a whole new trajectory. But one has to look at how they're integrated so that the whole 
this, the understanding of the integrated active whole organism becomes a foundation for really understanding evolution. And if we don't have that as a foundation, we're really working on, um, yeah, we don't have a solid basis for what we're doing. It's much too schematic and it's too simple. We make in a certain way life too easy for ourselves by thinking we can explain the evolution of individual traits. So that's the one side. The other is in looking at the development, which I do with the tadpole and the frog, um, this question of how do we begin to understand the animal that has form, but is actually a being that's continually recreating itself and is always not only active in its behavior, but is active in its physiology at all times, renewing itself. That's when it's an adult, it's always being renewed. It's an act, the animal is an activity that you can say ha, comes to form, but that form is never at rest completely, but it's something that's being created anew at all times. And of course, that's a process that happens in the individual development of an embryo into a fetus, into a, a newborn, of a tadpole into a frog, of a caterpillar into a butterfly, all these transformations that go on, you are seeing that the animal is actually creative activity. Every creature is a way of being, a way of being created, a creative way of being in the world. And this is where I use the term um, agency, right? That, that there's an agency that we have to reckon with in biology. We can't just talk about animals as if they were things or composites of characteristics. We have to see that the integrating, unifying um, principle of animals, that sounds abstract, but the, is, is actually the activity of creating itself at all times. And we need to be able to get into that process and see um, then how that activity and creativeness is different in a sloth than it is in a star-nosed mole, than it is in a lion. Yeah. That in, and that we, get, we can begin to see ah, these different ways of being in the world of creatures of a remarkable nature that are living in relation to each other, to their larger environments, in a way that speaks of an amazingly amazing creative wisdom all the way down into how the genes work in an animal, all the way down. So the animal as agency and the animal as creative activity and with those ideas that I really try to develop carefully um, and concretely in the book, those have incredible ramifications for how we think about the evolution of life on earth, the development of life on earth, and the nature of our fellow creatures, and actually our own nature as well. So in the third part of the book, the last part of the book, I have one portrayal and one discussion um, 
that's related to this question of our responsibility to our fellow creatures. And the example I bring is of a domesticated animal, the cow, the dairy cow, and how it's a different thing to look at animals whose evolution over the past, so 8,000 years or so has been strongly influenced by humanity and that the animals in the form that they exist today, all the domesticated animals would not be the way it is without us interacting with them. So there's this incredible closeness that we have to these creatures and very clearly a responsibility. We can say we have a responsibility to all creatures, but I wanted to focus on these that we are most closely related to and whose um, life we are influencing in ways um, yeah, on the whole planet that you can find very troubling. And so I go into the way that uh, dairy cows are dealt with on big farms, you know, the big factory farms with thousands of cows milking, how they're, you know, the breeding, the dehorning, the docking of the tails, the keeping them in very confined places, the way their food is uh, prepared, and all these things that basically are um, working from all these different angles to make cows sick. And therefore, they have to have lots of medication, and they live very short lives. And so it's painting a fairly bleak picture. Um, but I also try to paint a picture of how one can work with these animals differently, right? That it doesn't have to be like that. That we can begin to get a sense of the way of a being of, of a dairy, the dairy cow, of this incredible ruminant animal. Um, and then we can begin to ask, okay, we, we've interacted with you in these ways. We're, we're responsible for your existence to a degree, and yet you have your own, your own life. We've influenced it. We're part of it. How can we, how can we um, um, work with you in a way that is more respectful and more respectful and also acknowledges your way of being and is not only kind of de, uh, de-animalizing you in that sense, your, your nature, right? That you're, we're denaturing you, um, but rather we're, of course, we're, we're you, you, these animals have become in a certain way, they're serving humans' needs, but how can this serving be such that I take into account the special way of being of these creatures, right? And I'm not just diminishing their nature, diminishing and partially destroying. So that question of responsibility, it seems to me, looms very large for all animals today. And it very much depends on how we look at animals. Are animals complex machines? Um, I wrote an article a long time ago, you know, are cows 
bioreactors bio or are they organisms, right? That you can, are they production units, right? Is a pig a production unit or is it an ensouled creature? So th- it's really important how our understanding grows in relation to the animal to do justice to the animal on our own understanding as the basis to do justice to it in our actions. So this is really important for me, right? In all things connected with, um, you know, protecting our fellow creatures, honoring our fellow creatures and trying to understand our fellow creatures as a basis for, for our actions. So, I I end the book with a little short chapter that kind of brings together the threads of the methodology, you could say. Um, And and it's called The Biology of Beings. Sounds quite strange. A biology of beings. And what do I mean? It's nothing strange at all. It's just I'm acknowledging that all these creatures have their own unique integrity and as a biologist, as someone who's, who is interested in understanding these creatures, who asks, who are you, needs to do justice to that and to begin to fathom that beingness of animals that all of us recognize in any animal, whether it's a horse or a dog or a cat, that we gain any closeness to it, to us. And yet, that's not only our pets, it's the whole animal world. Um, And to begin here and there to get a sense of that as a basis for doing justice to our fellow fellow creatures. So that's the, and why it matters as the subtitle, right? Seeing the whole animal whole and why it matters because it matters that how the human being who is so dominant on our planet, understands our fellow creatures and then forms their lives more consciously interacting with the world rather than just um, doing what seems to be expedient at the moment. So I'd like to actually just read the last sentence of the book. Um, I think it's just one sentence. No, it's two sentences. When nature becomes a presence, and I have been touched by another being, I also honor that presence, that being. This connection forms the basis for greater insight and, importantly, for an ethical relation to the natural world. A biology of beings fosters connection. Thank you. You've been listening to the podcast from the Nature Institute. If you'd like to listen to additional episodes in our podcast or just learn more about our work, you'll find us at natureinstitute.org. Thank you for listening.